I remember as a teenager um, watching telly on a Saturday night with my parents. Um, I suppose I had to watch it with my parents because in those days, of course, you did just tend to have one telly. It was in colour, I'll give you that much, but there was a limited choice of channels. And uh, one of the programmes that we used to view was uh, a show with the magician Paul Daniels. And he had an element within the programme called the Bunko Booth. Some of you might remember it. It was where he demonstrated um, tricks, quite often card tricks, that uh, might have been done at a fair to con people. You know, the members of the public would watch the cards closely, they'd see how they were dealt, and they would say where the position of the Queen of Hearts was, and they would be wrong, and they would lose. The card would always be somewhere else, possibly in his pocket. But it wouldn't be wherever they put the finger, or at least not by the time it got showed to them. A bit of sleight of hand went on. Now, I am no use at card tricks. I struggle to shuffle a deck, you know, and go all over the place. Um, If you ask Danny sometime, That's a different matter. I'm sure he'll oblige. I bring this up not because he was confusing my daughter a week past Friday, but because there's an element of that cardsmanship, for want of a better word, going on in this passage. The elders and priests are upset because a day earlier, according to Matthew, Jesus had entered the temple and turned over the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and then brought healing to the blind and to the lame. And now he is standing again in the colonnades of the court of the Gentiles. And his presence challenges those who are in the place of authority. It suggests that their control over the temple is weak. It suggests that what they do might not be of God. It also stops them from earning money improperly. Jesus standing in the temple is like a police car parked in the middle of the patch that a drug dealer works in. Business is over for the day.
And so the priests think they can pull a fast one on Jesus. They'll get him out of there. They'll get him to condemn himself, to lay his cards on the table in a way that he is exposed and will not be able to continue. Where does his authority come from? Just what do you think you're doing here? Well, repeatedly in the gospel, we have heard of the authority of Jesus. In Matthew seven twenty nine, it says, He taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. In chapter 9, verse 6, Jesus says, But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And a couple of verses later, the crowd praised God who had given such authority to man. Then in chapter 10, we see that Jesus doesn't just hold that authority, but can give it to others. As he sends out the 12 disciples, Jesus gives authority to cast out demons and heal every disease and illness. And then, of course, later, after this week, this holy week, has passed, when we have today's passage, at the end of Matthew 28, at the end of Matthew's Gospel, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And then he challenges his followers to engage in the Great Commission, to go out to the world. The disciples and the crowd can clearly see the authority of God in Jesus. But the priests and elders, who are members of the Sanhedrin, simply see their own authority slipping away. And so we have a question that will surely, one way or another, lead to his arrest. If Jesus says it was an authority given by men, by other humans, or that it is self-appointed, they'll be easily easy to stop him, to say that this is wrong, that he has no place in bringing his message and doing these healings. However, if Jesus says the authority is given from heaven by God, then equally they may arrest basing the charge on a blasphemous act. It looks like a no-win situation. But Jesus pulls a trump card out the sleeve. Rabbis were recognised in their ability and in their discussions to sometimes answer a question with another question. 
it was a valid turn in the temple game of debating. So instead of giving a direct answer, he says, what of John's baptism? John, of course, had spoken of preparing the way for the one who would come, the Messiah, the one that was anointed, and therefore the one that has authority. Clearly, if John had authority and passed his baton on to Jesus, then Jesus was right to do as he did. Now, John was a controversial figure. It's not only his clothing and his diet were at odds with society, but his practice of baptism. You'll notice that the question that Jesus asked is not, what of John? But it's what of John's baptism? The baptism that John encouraged people to come and receive when they repented. Baptism was not normally entered into by the Jews. The act of full immersion had been a ritual for those converting to the Jewish faith, not those born as children of Israel. Its use, therefore, would have been quite suspicious to those priests and elders because it challenged the whole concept of being born into the chosen people of God and that being it. But although the priests might have struggled, many, many accepted that challenge to repent and to be baptised. Many, many individuals chose to come forward. And so among the crowd, John's baptism was widely accepted, even though it was considered unorthodox. A new table is therefore turned over. The accusing Sanhedrin are left not knowing how to answer John. Was he of men? Was he of heaven? Our knowledge of John the Baptist, who called people to return to God's way, who made a way for the coming of the Messiah, who was born to a mother that was beyond childbearing years and after his father had had a spiritual encounter, a time of prophecy. These things might lead us to proclaim loudly the answer of John's baptism must be of heaven. But for the priests, there is a challenge in that. If he was called by God, if this baptism was of God, why did they not listen? Why did they not respond? And the challenge comes to us. 
If Jesus is of heaven, what does that mean for our life? How do we change our ways? What are we doing now that we should stop? What are we not doing that we should begin? Where do we need to examine our life so that we can have a new relationship with God? It seems to me that the priests and elders are not inclined to accept that the notion that the Baptist was of God because of that populous first century strong opinion that he was not of man. They have left not knowing which way to turn. They need, if they accept John, to accept Jesus as from heaven. And that would undermine all of their role in the temple. John had preached personal repentance, but the message they've heard from Jesus goes beyond that. It starts with our individual faith, but has a wider message about the kingdom of God, how God's love reaches out to all, and therefore calls us to challenge injustice and to transform society. The priests and elders obviously find this far too hard to swallow. But if they publicly reject John, they will find themselves rejected by the people they aim to lead. And so the Sanhedrin solution is not to lay a winning hand. They simply cannot beat Jesus And so for the time being, they shrug their shoulders. They walk away. They say, I don't know. It is fine many times in life to say, I don't know. It is, time, it is fine to struggle with understanding. I've got two degrees, physics and theology. But I probably only retained a tiny amount of what the lecturers and the tutors tried to communicate to me. If I was sat down in an exam about quantum mechanics, I would be left struggling and writing, I don't know. It's all too far in the past. And there's great questions that we face in life. Not academic issues, but others. About the way of the world. And we've left going, I don't know. I don't understand. And we try to grapple with it, and we're left going, I don't understand. 
But when faced with the question of whether you think Jesus was of heaven or from men, where does his authority come from? Although for you, at this time, you might be saying, I don't know. Do not simply shrug the shoulders and walk away. But I urge you to seek that answer. To discover where that authority is and what it means for you. For those of us who have an answer and can say that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, which we sang earlier, I wonder how we each react to other difficult decisions we must face. If we are his, then as seekers of justice, sometimes the right answer is not what is best for us personally, but what is right for other people, particularly those weaker than ourselves. The right thing for the woman or man of God is to be humble and to serve. And it may mean that in some small way we lose power, wealth, status. We might lose friends in our workplace or our college or school simply because we are of faith. For some converts, our family may reject us because we have become Christians. But those losses, though they may hurt greatly, though they may cause pain and make us struggle in some way, do not surmount to much in the grand scheme of things. For in Christ, although we have had losses, in Christ there is great victory. Jesus, in our passage, does not state where his authority comes from, that it comes from his heavenly Father. But this will be revealed in but a few days, when what seemed like a great loss, Jesus' death on Calvary, is actually revealed on Easter morning to not be the end, but a most wonderful, loving gift. A gift beyond all measure, beyond anything else we can compare on earth. So consider how you respond to the question Jesus poses. Where is this authority from? And choose the right answer.
Amen.